So in, in our world, you know, domain expertise may include navigating traditional healthcare systems and payers, as well as employee benefits departments. And then I think really unique to the founders working in this space is lived experiences that are driving empathy and awareness around the problem set. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. While many of us have quickly adapted to a post-pandemic world, others are still reeling from its effect. For working parents, the pandemic revealed how juggling work with caregiving responsibilities can often be more of a burden than a joy. At Magnify Ventures, Joanna Drake is shifting some of this burden to the care economy. She and her team invest in technology companies that reimagine life for modern families. As a caregiver and investor in a male-dominated field, Joanna realizes the extra mile women must go at home and at work. Her advice? Build a support group and always engage with new perspective. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Joanna. Thanks for joining me this morning. Oh, it's great to be here with you, Christine. And uh, how appropriate that we are recording this podcast on National Caregivers Day, which is a theme so central to both of our universes. Oh, wow. I did not realize that today is uh, the National Caregivers Day, um, which is great. Thanks for bringing that to our, our listeners' awareness. That would be great to uh, for us to start a little bit about your background. I think you have really quite an interesting career as well. If you can share with us your journey, how to get to where you are today and what you're doing right now. Sure. Well, I'll try to make it not too long-winded, but it's definitely a multi-phased journey. Uh, In fact, I started out with um, classical management consulting training on the business front uh, with Booz Allen and Hamilton. And then because I had been exposed to really terrific work with some of the leading media and then tech companies, I ended up when I transitioned into becoming an entrepreneur myself, focusing on media plus tech startups. And so had three venture-backed tech startups in Silicon Valley. Uh, And then I was going to start another startup after a short stint as the CEO of a public mobile company out of Japan when I started angel investing. And as I was angel investing, realizing that at that phase of my career, I could do a lot more than just write checks to early stage founders, but could actually help them build their companies and really saw an opportunity to join the other side of the table and increase the diversity among the ranks of decision makers in venture. And that's when I joined a former partner and built out Core Ventures Group, which is a generalist seed stage venture firm. And then, uh, as you know, I have since uh, joined forces with my partner, Julie, who was previously on your podcast to co-found Magnify Ventures. And that um, that decision was such a wonderful silver lining right at the beginning of the pandemic, although Julie had been focused on developing our investment thesis for many years prior. Uh, and I saw an opportunity to really pursue venture investing into a wide open field that had 
really un- been underserved by entrepreneurs and technology and so saw an incredible business opportunity, but also on a personal level inspired to launch a firm focused really on the care economy and bringing technology innovation to families and uh, help them with the burden of caregiving. So that also resonated to me personally. Mm-hmm. So that's how I've come to be at Magnify Ventures. I forgot to ask you, I don't think I know, how do you and Julie connect? How do you know each other? And what spurred you to work together besides a lot of the missions that's aligned with your, what, you're, what you have in mind? Yeah, it's a funny story. We were both at a uh, conference in Arizona a couple of years back. It was actually a conference focused on helping to accelerate the success of women in venture. And so mostly women were there. And we actually didn't even meet during the conference itself. But on the third day, as we were both jumping into an Uber, Uber with a couple of other friends on the way back to the airport, we happened to sit next to each other and struck up a conversation ended up having a lot in common and really enjoying the conversation. So stayed in touch. And then when she was officially leaving Pivotal Ventures in order to launch Magnify Ventures, she essentially recruited me to join her and co-found the company. So that was um, a wonderful uh, opportunistic connection in an Uber that led to our new firm. And uh, it's been a, a terrific partnership since. You never know when you attend a conference or be in an Uber. You never know who you run into. Exactly. And it's good always to keep that open-minded. One of the, the thing is that um, I think you mentioned quite a bit about the the themes uh, that resonate with you. And maybe you can share with, with us, like, what are the themes that Magnify Ventures is all about? Yes. So we are, um, we're we're really one of the first venture firms to step out with a dedicated focus on bringing technology innovation into the $650 billion care economy, one that has really been underserved, um, even though most modern families in the United States and really everywhere are doing some form of caregiving. Um, It's not been an arena that's been sexy for Silicon Valley. You know, we've been pouring gazillions of dollars into mobile gaming and enterprise efficiency. But when it comes to what's happening behind our Zooms at home, there's there's very little uh, technology tools and support. So big open field. And um, we invest in founders who are developing solutions for caregiving all along the life cycle from pregnancy through to end of life. Turns out that's really quite a broad mandate. Um, Unlike my early skepticism when I was thinking about, oh, a venture firm dedicated to caregiving, it sounded quite niche and in fact, quite impact oriented. But the more I dug in and explored with Julie, uh, I found that it was such a big business opportunity to really generate huge venture returns that it was really compelling. Um, but it is so broad. So as we think about the entire life cycle, really addressing almost the entire population in the United States, we did um, have some discipline in our early thinking when we launched the firm to pick out four areas of focus. And so those four areas of focus include uh, the future of families. So thinking about you know raising kids from pregnancy through to when they leave the house and the journey um, as a family together, uh, the future of work 
for working parents and caregivers. And then aging innovation, which is a investment thesis that has been having interest and attention from venture capital historically in Silicon Valley. So a little bit more of a popular than some of the other areas along the life cycle that we're focused on. And then the fourth category is one that we, we really just made up. We call it household optimization. And it's really, as I was mentioning, thinking about, well, we might have a robotic vacuum cleaner and some food delivery services, but entrepreneurs haven't done much else for us thinking about what's behind the Zoom as every day we're managing the household and, you know, almost three quarters of families represent uh, a sandwich generation. So they may be caring for kids while they're also caring for older adults. Mm -hmm. What do you consider as household optimization in your mention about for like in, in terms of investment category? Yeah, so household optimization can be addressed by technology solutions that really give us back hours in the day. As you've probably seen some of the studies, the time spent on the mundane tasks of cleaning, laundry, shopping, cooking, caring for, help with, tutoring, um, it's such a burden predominantly on women um, and really detracts from their success as uh, in, in their professional lives as well. So it's a, a theme that uh, employers care about quite a bit because as you've seen during the pandemic, we've seen a lot of um, working moms choose not to go back to work or being unable to go back to work because of their caregiving responsibilities. But um, when it comes to examples of what might be um, a poster child, for example, for Magnify Ventures in this category, we have one um, portfolio company called Milo, which is essentially leveraging software intelligence to really lessen the time um, and the energy focused on household management, particularly for working parents with kids. Um, and actually uses AI to increase your productivity by sharing information, reminding you of tasks, you know, crazy here day tomorrow, doctor's appointments the next day, um, and then sharing the burdens across multiple stakeholders in the house. And ultimately, finding more joy in the mundane tasks of raising kids and managing a household. How do you see that? I mean, when you, you oftentimes when you think about all these uh, technology uh when I'm thinking about the user tend to be somebody who are tech savvy, people who are in the, living in the Silicon Valley, how is that addressing uh, the need of the uh, community who probably need it more because they don't have the support yet? They're not as tech savvy. Thank you for posing that question in that regard, because I think it's really important to say out loud that at least for our firm and our focus, we are not focused on the 1% or not focused on Silicon Valley as the ultimate users. We're not focused on necessarily tech savvy users because our, our opportunity and our own challenge is to serve the broadest definition of families, both geographically, um, socioeconomically, uh, demographically. So we, we really want to reach the largest audience. So you really can't have tech barriers in front of them. And I'll give you one example of that, um, a company that you've showcased on your podcast before, Mi Salud. Mm -hmm. Mi Salud is really the first digital health solution focused exclusively on the Latinx community, both in the United States and Mexico. 
And what they want to do is, you know, inspired by the um, the underserved population coming out of the pandemic, really wanted to reach their community through digital tools to make healthcare and both physical and mental health care more affordable, accessible, and most importantly, culturally aligned by building trust with clients um, uh, and specifically via Spanish-speaking doctors and health coaches. So one of the things that they're doing, they have a couple of different you know, case studies on the types of uh, segments that they're serving and how they find those segments and go to them and really build trust and build uh technology tools that are uh, easily adoptable. Um, one of their case studies is working with uh, Rio Farms. They just published it, but they are essentially working with agricultural workers in the field and they actually go out and sign sign them up um, for uh, downloading the MiSalude app and help um, them navigate the app and really start with just overall health screenings. And one of the things that's been really helpful for Rio Farms as an employer who has paid for the Misalode service is just with the initial screenings, they're able to discover really quickly um, chronic conditions that were undetected prior. And so they're able to immediately find out, you know, that a certain percentage of their employees have diabetes, have hypertension, have cholesterol. And then they're able through a now established trusted relationship with their health coach actually help them get uh, accessible and affordable health care, both in the physical and the mental health, which as we know in the pandemic, mental health crisis has been touching every population. And that's the example of, you know, an agricultural worker. On the flip side, MiSalute is also working with a very sophisticated um, employer account uh, company called Serbi, which is a cybersecurity company where most of their employers, employees, sorry, are um, working remotely. And they engaged MiSalude because they wanted to help their employees deal with work-related stress, um, isolation coming out of the pandemic, you know, family and financial situations that are leading to a lot of burnout and risk of churn. So by signing them up for MiSalude and encouraging them to access um, health coaches and uh, support and mental health uh, tools, they are seeing results that are quite outstanding. I think in, they just published a report that in three months, they signed up 50% of all employees and that they had 100% of them after only two sessions of mental health support um, see clinical improvement in anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. So um, those are counter examples, you know, the, who you think might um, be at the extremes of sophistication in regards to technology tools. But by designing accessible um, interfaces and affordable and Spanish speaking support, they're able to penetrate both segments very effectively. Do you think that how important that is uh, to to your Fund as well as uh, to the viability of the business, the ability to reach to that community instead of just the the tax savvy Silicon Valley bubble. Well, it's critical. Um, you know, first of all, on a business front, just reaching the Silicon Valley population is not interesting because it's just too small. <laughs> and, so yeah, just by, by sheer numbers alone, you know, we that's why we want to reach um, 
as wide and far as we can from every profile of what we define the modern family. Mm-hmm. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, Turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. And so um, as a venture person, you've seen a lot of different founders trying to tell you their story and get your buy-in and then hopefully get investment dollars and support from Magnify. What are the things that you see that interest you and what are the things that kind of make you turn away from that particular opportunity? Hmm. Well, um, thank you for asking because it's always great to evangelize what we're working for, but also clarify what we're not looking for. Um, And on the latter front, that's a little bit easier. Um, So, you know, there's certain categories that we're not investing in biotech life sciences. We tend to shy away from pre-FDA technologies I'm not looking for companies that are heavily dependent on people-intensive models because we're really looking for technology efficiencies. That's what's going to drive ultimate um, profitability and venture-sized returns. Um, what we are looking for is, you know, first and foremost, if you're investing in the early stage, the first set of criteria come down to the founders because it, it really is hard to be successful at getting a startup company off the ground and then, you know, building a company from scratch into a successful later stage growth and ultimately um, public or acquired entity. And so in order to be able to successfully navigate that hard roller coaster journey, it is critical that founders have, you know, really strong and passionate vision for the problem set that they're tackling. Ideally that they have domain expertise, you know, in our world, we often like to work with founders who have thought through business models whereby the families do not have to pay for their technology solutions. So either maybe uh, an available benefit through employer programs or maybe covered by health insurance, for example. So in, in our world, you know, domain expertise may include navigating traditional healthcare systems and payers, um, as well as employee benefits departments. Uh, and then I think really unique to the founders working in this space is lived experiences that are driving empathy and awareness around the problem set. So that's kind of the profile of the founders. And then what I learned when I was investing early on at Core Ventures Group and bring that these insights now to magnify is that it really is critical that amongst the founding team, at least one of the executives has been in a successful startup before. Because one of the things that is, you know, once you step into a startup and raise venture capital, you're on a cycle where you have to deploy that capital very, very effectively and efficiently in order to get to the metrics that unlock the next fundraising cycle. And to do that well, you really can't be learning how to build a company by scratch. You actually have to have a playbook. So it's not critical that the, you know, founder quote CEO, if that's the title, 
have have had a successful startup under their belt, but someone on the founding team really needs to have that. And then in addition, I think it's really important that they bring some balance between business and technology um, and also some you know, specialized model around um, user acquisition or distribution partnerships that really get them into the market quickly without a lot of expenditure. Mm-hmm. How early does Magnify, like what stage do you guys usually uh, invest in? What stage of the company? Yeah, we are investing early. So how we define that is either in the pre-seed which could be as early as concept or a working prototype, but certainly no paying customers yet, uh, to uh, seed where we're probably spending the bulk of our dollars and time. And then we have made some uh, investments in the Series A starting point. We've had three companies to date where we came in at the Series A round, but going forward, we're probably going to be mo- mostly focused on the pre-seed and seed. Mm-hmm. And then say the check size. Yeah, you know, prices are changing, valuation uh, sizes and round sizes are changing in this downturn. So everything's a little bit in shift. But I think when we modeled our construction model um, at the outset, we characterized uh, pre-seed as roughly 250K checks. Seed is roughly 1.4 to 1.5 million and Series A, roughly 2.5 million checks. Okay. And speaking of the downturn, how would you advise uh, new emerging managers uh, to prepare for this downturn? Good question. Uh, As you know, I um, helped to co-found a community and a conference that we produce every year called RAISE. And we have an annual summit typically in October where we bring together the best of emerging managers and showcase them to LPs who want to back emerging managers but don't necessarily have the resources or the time to do all the diligence. And that's been a really, really valuable and impactful franchise. It's actually heading into its ninth year, believe it or not. Congratulations. But we'll... We're actually going to do a specific event on March 7th, just focused on what can we help emerging managers who have not lived through a um, 2008 cycle before, what can we share with them in regards to market insights and playbooks for being successful in this downturn? So I have thought about it quite a bit, and we are bringing together panels of veterans to share their specific tips. But at a high level, I think, you know, you can frame it with with two, two different areas of focus. One is how you think about your existing portfolio companies. And in that regard, I think it's really important to really focus your energy and your capital on those firms that are far enough along and have enough capital to really make a go and survive this downturn um, and really put most of your muscle and your energy there. Um, but even then, to stay very close to other co-investors and your independent board board of director members, because this is going to be a tricky next you know year or two, and not always in a comfortable position for early stage investors, because there is 
an expected divergence with deep-pocketed later-stage investors who can get pretty elbowy right now. So it's and it, it's a good time to reread your investor agreements and cap tables and stay close to your other investors and watch out for pay-to-play terms and other scenarios where you may be losing protective provisions and information rights. Um, so that's kind of a, a lens from a portfolio management perspective. And then on the flip side, just thinking about managing the firm and specifically um, communication and management of your LP relationships, I think it's a time when LPs are particularly distracted. Um, But it's probably the most important time to stay close and candid and persistent in your communication with them because they can use all the -the on-the-ground intel that you have uh, in terms of trends in your own portfolio as they manage their larger portfolios and think about how they're continuing to deploy capital. Um, And then most importantly, just like we tell our portfolio companies, it's a good time to manage your expenses so that you can stay out of the fundraising market um, for some time as well. It's a great time to be starting companies um, because talent is unleashed, it's less expensive, and there is pent-up capital. So it's a good time to be looking for new opportunities. But um, we should all be managing our expenses very carefully. Yeah. So in addition to managing your expenses, what are other things that you advise your portfolio companies to to thrive during this downturn and come up really strong? Yeah. So I think, um, of course, it's a a little bit um, generic, but you can read it on almost every venture capital blog. It is critical to have runway right now, ideally so that you do not have to fundraise in this environment. So 12 to 18, even to 24 months is ideal in the early stages. That'll get you through. Um, And if the fundamentals of the company are so strong and the metrics are so strong, you know, sometimes it's appropriate to actually raise more capital because you can and investors actually want to put more money into your company. So long runways are a good thing right now. Um, And then I think just capital efficiency, you know, knowing that watching that every dollar is going into um, the right uh, investment bucket from a talent or a technology perspective or a customer acquisition, uh, because it is, you know, we have changed our focus as investors from really looking towards, you know, all about growth, momentum and metrics to really thinking about unit economics and profitability and controlling one's own destiny. Um, and then having said all that on an op- optimistic note, you know, there is a lot of incredible talent that's been unleashed by the big tech companies and other startups who are not making it. So it's a great time to um, invest in the best talent and continue to build out really your most important resource, which are your employees. Yeah, also it's an interesting time as well. With the COVID, there's a lot more remote workers that you can tap into. And it seems a bit more common now to have people not working in the office, especially in the tech space. And do you see a lot of that in your portfolio companies? Absolutely. Um, you know, as I look across multiple portfolios from the core ventures group funds, we we have many companies that were remote first, particularly in the cybersecurity space or um in the IoT kind of developer tools space um, because the nature of their talent is really mostly coding remotely. It hasn't 
been a big impact on the culture of these companies. And so they intuitively were kind of built remote first. And then when the pandemic hit, you know, many were moving around and really didn't skip a beat because that was part of their culture and their team structure as it is. And then as I look across the Magnify portfolio, you know, it's been, there are a couple of things that have been surprising. Number one, we only have one company that is has a headquarters in Silicon Valley. We have several with founders in the Bay Area, but we really only have one located here. So that really speaks to the geographic distribution of talent in regards to you know startup founders and their teams. And um, amongst our portfolio, I think three can be characterized as fully distributed. So that is definitely the trend of the future. I don't see it going back. Um, but the one note that I have for founders and managers there that I experienced through our portfolio companies is that if you are going to be either distributed or remote first, then it is critical that you really spend the time to think about the infrastructure and the the practices for coming together across all employee ranks, because that almost requires more work than just having an office and people showing up. You have to be very thoughtful and proactive about bringing all hands together, bringing teams together and providing them the kind of support so that they can be effective and uh, and happy in their jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's why this whole caregiving is important. <laughs> yes. So uh, I know we are short on time. There's a few things, um, you know, it's amazing uh, work that you've done and the partnership that you have with Julie. Um, I think uh, you're part of... Uh, different women's group uh, in your life that, you know, is there's area, um, who are they and, and what's the role that they play in your life and in your career in this different women's group that you're part of? Yes, I have so many women's groups, I'm proud to say, and they have been such an impactful part of my life. Uh, I was, I am fortunate enough um, to have a, a stepmom who's been a very successful a professional leader in her own career and in her own industry. And so even as a young adult, I think when I was still at Berkeley, I started tagging around a conference and community that she had joined called C200, which is Committee of 200. And it was founded um, really to be the old gal's answer to the old boys network and helping women who are CEOs or founders and owners of companies to really build their own professional and personal uh, community and sounding board and actually, you know, sometimes actual board <laughs> boards. And it's an incredible inspirational group um, that I've been part of. And have, uh, now I'm the director of the Northwest category and responsible for convening our 60 plus members on a regular basis to advance their careers. So that's just been an, an, an incredible um, support group. Uh, in addition to which, uh, on the venture front, there's, as you've heard, a wonderful movement and now organization called AllRaise, which is really dedicated to increasing the number of both female and underrepresented founders who are backed by venture capitalists, but also increase the ranks of women in venture, a really important um, uh, movement because of the small the peltry numbers, um, and they've had an incredible impact over the last call it five years or so. And happy to be an active member there. And then, of course, I've got my own girlfriend group. We call ourselves the Bridge Group. It's about ten super women um, uh, who have come together. I think now for a decade, and we don't know how to. Pl- 
play bridge, truth be told. But we do get together on a very regular basis to talk about, you know, what what our goals are, what our ambitions are, what our struggles are, and really to support one another in a friendship um, embrace that has been one of the most powerful aspects of, of my personal and professional life. Now make me feel like I want to be part of your bridge group. <laughs> <laughs> so do you, what do you have uh, advice for uh, women who are young CEO who just started out and how do you build that network to help you grow as a person, but also with their career? Yes. Well, I, um, I have had many of my um, younger mentees ask me the same question. And I, you know, I often tell them, go form your own bridge group, find a peer group. You know, ideally not not in your company because you could use a little distance from your colleagues, um, but uh, people who are both in your um, in your career stage and maybe in different industries to provide a you know a really different backdrop of perspectives and get together with them. You know, it could be every two months over drinks, could be a hike uh, every month, but find the format that works for you all, and you know you can form bridges for one another. And that can be one of the most powerful ally group you can get access to. And then, of course, if you happen to be a female founder in a startup uh, company or a venture capitalist, I encourage them to join the All Raise group. You can find that online. And if you're um, at a stage where your startup has reached 20 million in revenues, you may be eligible to join the C200 group. So ping me and I'll, mm-hmm. I'll uh, nominate you. Yeah, so that, that's great. Well, thank you for your time and thank you for sharing your story and um, have a very nice weekend. Oh, thank you, Christine. We're, we're always delighted to be in conversation and partnership with you. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.